Imagine for a moment that it's a Thursday evening. You've just finished a great workout, you're feeling good, and you're in the mood for a beer. But maybe you still have some work to do, or you need to drive somewhere, or maybe you've decided to cut alcohol out of your life. Lucky for you, non-alcoholic beer is a thing, and it can actually be really good. One of our sponsors for this episode is a company called Athletic Brewing. They make non-alcoholic craft brews. I've tried a couple of their beers, and if I didn't know they were alcohol-free, I would never have guessed. They are just as tasty and just as refreshing as any other beer. For 20% off your order, go to athleticbrewing.com and enter the promo code OUTTHERE20 at checkout. That's athleticbrewing.com, promo code OUTTHERE20. Hi, I'm Willow Belden, and you're listening to Out There, the podcast that explores big questions through intimate stories outdoors. When I think of traveling, when I imagine the places I want to visit, I see them. I imagine what my eyes will show me. But what if your eyes showed you nothing? What if all you saw was blackness? Would you still travel? Would you have the courage to explore? How would you experience the world with your other senses? On this episode, we're going to hear from a man who lost his vision, but who didn't let that stop him from exploring the world. He's going to take us on a grand adventure and show us the world as he sees it, with his other four senses. The story comes to us from the Armchair Explorer podcast. Armchair Explorer is a podcast hosted by travel writer Aaron Miller. On the show, the world's greatest adventurers tell their best stories from the road. Today, we are sharing one of those stories with you. I'll let Aaron take it from here. And who knows, the journey he takes you on might just change the way you see the world. Taking us on this journey is Christopher Venter. He goes by the moniker of the blind scooter guy. I'm not going to say too much about who he is or what his story is right now because he's going to jump into that in just a second. But I will say that this is a really unique journey in another way too because Christopher is following in the footsteps of another blind explorer. and His name was James Holman and he was a famous 19th century traveler, a famous explorer of his day. He's an incredible guy. I really, really uh, think more people should find out about him. I, I loved learning about his life. And the journey that Christopher is taking actually retraces the footsteps of one of Holman's journeys through Europe. And we're going to hear about that as he goes too. But for now, close your eyes. And I mean, really, close your eyes and imagine what it would be like to see the world like this, to see only darkness, to go from a fully able-bodied traveler and adventurer who liked nothing more than to explore the world, to suddenly, at the age of 40, losing your sight entirely. Would you have the courage to carry on? 
I've always been addicted to adventure and I, I blame that on my parents who sent me off to Boy Scouts at a very young age and uh, put books by authors like Enid Blyton in my midst. And uh, I found myself wanting to be the, the sixth member of the Famous Five quite often. So I, I've always had this adventurous streak and um, I, I wanted to do something to leave a bit of a legacy. And I'd um, first considered traveling all around South Africa with a, with a donkey cart or a solar powered car or something crazy. And I, I couldn't find one. And when I realized the logistics behind doing that, I also realized that it's just not within my abilities. So I, I thought, well, what about an old Vespa scooter? And that's where the, the, the love for Vespa started. Before I knew it, I'd mounted a whole collection of, of Vespa scooters, 18 to be, uh, to be exact. Hence the name, The Scooter Guy. At this point, he wasn't blind and he was just known as Chris The Scooter Guy. He wanted to leave a legacy. He wanted to do a big adventure and he wanted to ride his scooter a lot. So he ended up having a crazy idea. So the plan was to start at the Red Cross War Memorial Children's Hospital here in Cape Town, South Africa, and travel through Africa, across Europe, around the UK, and over to Dublin Islands to finish at Our Lady's Children's Hospital. And um, 20 countries, 30,000 kilometers, uh, no support vehicle, on on little two-stroke 150cc Vespa scooters. That, That would certainly make a good story. It was an amazing adventure, and you can read about it in his first book, How I Became the Blind Scooter Guy. Four guys on Vespers going across South Africa, Botswana, Zambia, Malawi, Tanzania, France, Italy, Ireland. What a laugh. But it was also on that trip that disaster struck, and it changed his life forever. Well, halfway through Africa, I became very ill, and I just was bounced from doctor to doctor and hospital to hospital and they couldn't figure out what was wrong exactly and uh, unable to get the health care that I needed in the middle of Africa it was suggested that I, I fly home so I flew home and I thought well the trip is over for me at this point but um, you know, doctors diagnosed a whole um, horde of things from, from Bohazia to food poisoning to dehydration to all sorts of things which had messed my immune system up but they didn't actually diagnose correctly this virus that was attacking my, my retinas. They, they pumped me full of vitamins and antibiotics and said, go and um, complete your trip. But the whole time that I was traveling in Europe, I, I knew something wasn't quite right. I, I was tired and weak, and I thought I just need a little bit of time at home on the sofa, and, and perhaps I'd, I'd be okay. Some home-cooked meals and a couple of beers, and I, I'd, I'd be all right. I, I was very wrong. When I got home, it, it, you know, my world came tumbling down. The doctors still couldn't work out what was wrong with him. He had all kinds of tests, MRIs, blood tests. Nothing seemed to explain this strange illness until one day his sight started to dim very, very quickly. Within 24 hours, it was gone. He was sent to an ophthalmologist and they immediately diagnosed the virus that was growing on his retinas, sent him to hospital, but it was too late. I sat in that hospital um, in the ward a day later and, and the doctor, a rather abrupt guy without a, much of a bedside manner, told me, oh, we think we've saved your life, but you're blind and you're going to be blind for the rest of your life. You're never going to see again. So at that point, I thought my, my days of being a, an adventurer and a, an aspiring travel writer were, were absolutely over. 
I, I just said to the doctor, I said, look, send me home. I'll go bounce off walls and I'll, I'll figure this out. But I just need to get the hell out of here. And to be honest, my, my plan was just to off myself. I, I thought there's no way I'm going to live as a blind person. I don't want to. My life is over. And because of the sickness, I, I was not only blind, but I'd become so weak. I could barely walk. I couldn't shower. I couldn't use the toilet myself. I, I was pretty weak and, and just as well because I probably would have gone and jumped out in front of the truck or something like that. Something crazy, crazy and stupid if I, if I could have. And it gave me time to, to heal and, and I learned about about accessibility, I learned how to, to navigate the world differently and how to, yeah, it was a new challenge, a massive, massive challenge, yeah, perhaps the, the biggest of my life. It was an incredibly difficult challenge and he had many, many dark days where frankly, he wasn't sure if he was going to be up to it. Who of us would, who of us could after such a sudden and debilitating change? He describes it as a sentence for which he committed no crime. But then he heard about James Holman, and it all started to change. Holman was, was quite a character, and, and I almost see myself as some sort of a reincarnation of him, if, if you believe in that. He, he was um, you know, also the type that wanted to bounce off the walls. And when he lost his sight, um, just uh, in his late teenage years, he... he refused to let the doctor's um, diagnosis be accepted. And he said to them, you know, I'm not going to accept this. I'm going to become a doctor. So he went off to, to Edinburgh and he studied medicine. At the end of his studies, these um, um, professors said to him, look, James, have you come any closer to, to realizing now that you cannot do anything about your sight loss? And uh, he said, no, I haven't. He said, well, perhaps it's time for you to travel to some warmer climates. And, and that's James took that to mean go and travel around the world rather than go and have a holiday. So his, his first trip was was a trip across France and down the course of Italy. And he did all these amazing things. I just found that really inspirational. And let me go and take a step in, in Holman's footsteps and do some of the things and, and see what it would be like today doing these things versus doing them in the 1800s. Holman was an amazing guy. What he did was incredible by anyone's standards, let alone someone without sight, traveling in the early 19th century. He circumnavigated the globe. He fought the slave trade in Africa. There's actually a river in the Congo named after him. He helped to map uncharted parts of Australia. He survived the freezing depths of Siberia and rogue elephants in Sri Lanka. And he did it all by foot and horse and boat and with very little money. Most explorers in those days were wealthy aristocrats, but he did it with just a few pennies in his pocket and a determination that nothing would get in his way. And that's what inspired Christopher. If Holman could do it back then with all those disadvantages, maybe he could too. Maybe his dream of being an explorer wasn't over after all. I guess it just gave me a goal. It gave me a a project to look forward to. It gave me a story that I thought would be would be interesting. And I guess also I wanted to prove something to myself other than you know, creating a story. I wanted to prove that I could still do these things because, hell, if Holman could do it, then why could I not? So the, the journey was a six-week journey and it was between southern France and Sicily. But we went in reverse. 
I was really worried about visiting places that I'd been to before because I thought you know, I had such good memories of, of the time that I traveled there. I've been to, to that area a couple of times. Uh, you know, it's a waste of my energy to feel that way because I, I, I saw things more clearly. Sometimes you, you only see things really clearly when you close your eyes. Accompanying him on this trip is his then girlfriend, who's now his wife, Tamlin, who was his companion, of course, but she wasn't guiding him in the way that you might expect. She helps, of course, but one of the things that really comes across in the book is how independent Christopher is, how he's able to navigate and find his way just using his other four senses. Sometimes you only see things clearly when you close your eyes. There were some things that I noticed differently, things that, that you know, when I could see, you just, you don't, you don't notice them. The, the toll of a church bell in, in um, Catania, in Pisa, in Avignon, they're all different. They all told totally, totally different. And I'd never noticed that before. For me, it was just a case of, well, there's a bell ringing and they're, they're 100% different. And, and you, you actually pick that up. The smell of things, and obviously the, the difference just between Italian and French food is, is highly noticeable. But even within Italy, just going um, from from Sicily to the mainland and, and, and picking up the different scents, the different odors, the different sounds of, of accents and um, the way people move. In big cities, people move a lot faster. In the country, they're slow. The, the texture of buildings, the different cobblestones, um, site accounts for between 75 and 85 percent of your used senses. So when you when you don't have to um, use that RAM, it's freed up to focus on other things. You're almost slowing down in how you see things. It, it might take me a little bit longer to draw an image of of something because I'm having to use all these different. Um, I'm, I'm taking all this different input and I'm drawing an image using that rather than just looking at it and saying, "Boom, that's it, done." But when you're actually out traveling and you're experiencing so much, if you're in, in Avignon and, and you, you you walk in this cobbled street and you come and you sit underneath this big tree and you feel the shade of the big tree and you you, you uh, served at this little bistro by this um, uh, French lady, who, who you, you can tell she's tall because the sound of her voice comes from, from high up. And you can tell she's jolly and she's probably smiling because she sounds happy when she speaks. You do draw an image and, and uh, it might not be exactly right, but you certainly do not just, I mean, I, I see black. I see nothing but a starless night. But I, I do, in my mind, um, imagine um, something. There's evidence that if you're born blind or go blind really young, then the brain actually does rewire itself to utilize the other four senses more than they would ordinarily do. On MRI scans, for example, you can actually see the areas of the brain for hearing, taste and touch and smell. And they're larger for blind people than for sighted people. And the visual areas are obviously much, much smaller. But because Christopher went blind late in life, it's different. He can remember what it was like to see. He knows colors and textures and light and shade in the way that someone who was never sighted couldn't. And because of that, he can actually construct a representation of the world in his imagination using input from his other senses. It's like an artist creating an impression of a scene 
not by looking at it and copying it exactly, but by listening to it and smelling it and tasting it and feeling it. But it happens slowly. He has to wait for that picture to evolve like a sketch in pencil, slowly filling in shade and color and detail until it becomes a full oil painting on canvas. And because of that, Christopher is truly present and aware in a way that we often aren't. He picks up the story now, this epic adventure following in the footsteps of the great blind explorer James Holman, having just arrived in Catania in Sicily, a beautiful ancient port on the eastern coast of the island, right at the foot of Mount Etna. We checked into our, our little um, self-catering flat, and my wife, um, she didn't know where we were going. Literally, she was always joked that she was there to drive the camera, but she, she had absolutely no idea where we were going from day to day. I was the one who planned everything, navigated and did all of that. And we'd, we'd left that, that little apartment one morning and I was trying to get my bearing. We had to get to a, a town center point called the Duomo. It's where the elephant statue is at um, kind of the center of town where all the, the youth meet and that type of thing. And um, we started walking and she was like, I hope we're walking in the right direction. So I said, well, we are. So she said, well, how can you know that? So I said, well, I can smell the fish market. And I'm telling you right now that in, in about... 400 meters, we're going to come to a fish market. And, and 100 meters or two further along, I said, and now I can tell you we're definitely in the right direction because not only can I smell the fish market, but I can hear the underground river that runs um, and there's a big excavated area right next to the fish market. And I know from, from now from smell and from sound exactly where we are. And, and a little bit further, I could hear music from buskers playing on that you know, open plain where the Duomo is. So, so, again, I'd managed to use my other senses to navigate us to, to a rendezvous point where we, we were meeting a friend. Okay, I'm going to have to reveal my guiltiest secret to you now. Only my friends and family know this. It's kind of shameful. I am a travel writer with no sense of direction. I know. I'm hugely embarrassed by it. Literally, if I go to the restroom at a restaurant, I get lost trying to find my table afterwards. It's hilarious. So I am hugely impressed that Christopher can basically do better than I can using only his sense of smell. It's amazing. And they did end up making it to that fountain, the Fountain of the Elephant, which, according to legend, is said to have magical powers. It is supposed to help appease Mount Etna's violent volcanic temperament, which he's going to need. Mount Etna is a bastard of a mountain. <laughs> the Sicilian flag, they, they show Mount Etna and this monster and everything, and it, it's quite apt because it's, it's just an absolute beast of a mountain. It's um, destroyed the city so many times, it, they, they just rebuilt. It's um, given so much fertile ground that um, they grow beautiful blood oranges in and things like that. So they, they, they love and respect and fear the mountain. There's, there's so many emotions that come with it. For me, I, I, I wanted to, to climb Mount Etna. The day that we did go and climb Mount Etna, unfortunately, it was, it was still quite chilly. And, and there was snow on the mountains because uh, it's, it's quite a, a few peaks there. And um, the mountain was erupting at the time, but not aggressively. It had been erupting for a few months. So it was open to climbers. And, and I told Tamlin, this won't be a problem because there's trails, there's a jeep track, and I'll be able to feel the jeep track out and we'll be able to follow it, no problem. But of course, the snow had totally covered the jeep track. And 
the jeep track had become quite iced over so it wasn't just snow it was like walking on on steep ice so we'd have to walk on the sides or you know cutting from contour to contour and and scrambling up in this snow that was sometimes um, two feet deep and we we got to 2000 i don't know 2800 odd meters when they evacuated the mountain so we were just just right there at the summit and i was quite relieved to to turn around and and it, it gave me a reason to to one day have to go back there Mount Etna is a bastard of a mountain. The ancient Greeks believed it was the workshop of Cyclops and that the giant Typhon lay underneath. And they weren't far wrong. It is the highest active volcano in Europe, topping out at almost 11,000 feet, and it has the longest recorded history of eruptions in the world, dating back more than 3,000 years. And it has wreaked havoc on the surrounding towns and villages, including Catania, during all of that time. So as hikes go, it's definitely not to be sniffed at. But what Christopher doesn't say is that the reason it was so important for him to climb it was that Holman did too. Well, actually, Homan climbed Vesuvius, which is a few hundred miles to the north, another famous volcano. But that wasn't the only adventure that Holman led him on. There's so many little interesting things that I, that I, I tried to mirror um, at Holman. He, he went and, and, and hiked through this forest. And, and ironically, when he hiked through this indigenous forest, he got lost in the forest and struggled to find his way out. So, so we went and hiked through an indigenous forest not with intentions of getting lost, but guess what? We got lost. And it was raining and it was muddy and, and that was in, in southern Tuscany. There were just so many um, interesting things. Holman was, was certainly braver than me because he, you know, he went and rode a horse um, from, from Tuscan village to Tuscan village. And we, we chose a tandem um, side-by-side bicycle that we, we cycled all around Luca in Tuscany, this, this beautiful ancient village. Just going and, and buying a fresh baguette and a camembert and sitting in these trees on a, on a bench. So we, we, we just tried to mirror, but also not do exactly what he did, um, but rather to you know, take a modern look at how, how today you travel versus how they would have had to travel back then. Christopher had lots of incredible adventures. He traveled through Tuscany, as he says. He took part in a huge Easter procession. He smelled the gunpowder from the fireworks, the bands playing, crowds cheering all around him. He explored the staggeringly beautiful Cinque Terre, I think just one of the most gorgeous places on earth. But next up for Christopher was another Holman-inspired adventure, and this time on the absolutely gorgeous Amalfi Coast. Holman went out on the Tyrrhenian Sea and he paddled on a fishing boat. He he oared um, a big stretch of the Tyrrhenian Sea. For me, that wasn't an option, so I went on a, a sea kayak and I kayaked along the Amalfi Coast just to kind of get a, a feel for how how you would have felt being out there with, without sight in, in the dark when everybody else around you can see. It was a chilly day. It was quite windy. And the, 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 the young guy that took us out um, uh, kayaking, he, um, he, he made a special exception because they, he only operates – he actually – told us that he only works for three or four months of the year and the rest of the time he sits around and drinks limoncello and, and eats pizza. He'd never taken a blind person out and he really wanted to. He actually brought his boats down to the beach and, and we went out a little bit before he, he, his season had started. And um, I almost opened his eyes because he thought that it was going to be a real challenge. It was going to be real tough. It was going to be a, a, a task. He's going to have, almost have to guide me by the hand and and that wasn't the case we just got onto the 
the tandem kayaks and we paddled and we had so much fun and, and uh, it was a great experience. I want to share with you some of Christopher's reflections from that time on the water. Some of it is from his kayak trip and some of it is from a ferry boat over to Amalfi. And I think it really shows how his other four senses take over. And this is what he writes. Sounds, water splashing against the twin hulls of the catamaran, a ship's horn, wind passing through the rigging and making it rattle as we pass the other boats. Smells, Bait from fishermen on the dock, fresh sea air when we pulled out of the berth, suntan lotion from the tourists, the strong garlic-laced breath of a crew member, the light odour of lemon tree blossoms as we pulled into Amalfi. Tastes, salt water spraying lightly in my face and finding its way to my taste buds, the lingering taste of Nutella and sugar-laced cornetto from my breakfast. Touch. My wife's cold, shivering body clutching tightly at mine to try and steal some warmth. The hard steel deck of the boat under my feet, with its hound-toothed texture bossed on the metal. Water spraying at my face when the boat porpoised over sets of swells. I just think that's beautiful. And the next time I'm on the water, or climbing a volcano, or getting lost in a forest, or just eating camembert under the shade of an old oak, I'm going to stop too. I'm going to close my eyes and see what images, what paintings my other four senses can conjure in my mind, just like Christopher does. But actually, it was during this part of the journey, as it was nearing its end, that something changed in Christopher. Even though he'd been having this incredible time, there was also a part of him that had been sad, that had also mourned for what he had lost, for what he was missing, that everyone else around him was experiencing and taking for granted. But then right at the end, he suddenly changed. He had traveled the entire length of Italy from south to north, just like Holman. He had crossed into France and explored its southern coast and mountains. He had made friends and met locals. He had kayaked in the ocean and climbed a volcano. And what he realized was that he was an explorer. He was an adventurer. He was, just like Holman, not letting this nightmare fade his dreams. I can still smell, I can still taste, I can still touch, uh, you know, the, I can still do things. I, I sometimes have to do things, um, I have to adapt the way I do them, but, but I can still enjoy the world so much more. And I can probably enjoy the smell of things and the taste of things more than a sighted person would. It's a, it's a different way of, of living, but it, I can still live. I used to ask why, he says. Why did this happen to me? Why should I live like this? Why me? Why does it have to be so hard? Why not anyone else? Why not someone more deserving of the bad luck? Now he says he asks different questions. How can I do that? How can I achieve my dreams? How can I make the world more accessible to myself? How can I get out there and do all the things that I want to? How can I make the world see that a blind man can do anything that a sighted person is able to? But right at the end, there's a scene in the book in that town of Luca where they went cycling where Tamlin sees a little blind boy walking past. And Christopher wants to say something. He's inspired to say something to him. But of course, the boy doesn't speak English and the moment passes and he missed the chance. So I asked him, what would he have said? There were so many people when I went blind that, that kind of shied away and just disappeared out of my life. And, and you know, sometimes I think, well, they, they're not real friends anyway. It's just as well that they're gone. Um, but, but I always say that for the people that didn't say anything, 
because they perhaps didn't know what to say. I would have preferred if they just said anything. And we were sitting on this bench, you know, and Tamman told me the story of these two ladies coming along with a young boy, and they're walking quite fast. That that he almost like was struggling to keep up with them. They, they were on either side of him. He didn't have a, a cane. Um, they had you know, one hand on each of, of his shoulders, and they were guiding him along. And the, the, the streets are quite um, rough and rustic there, you know, a little bit ripped up. And uh, when she told me. There's a blind boy walking there, and I was like, "Really?" And by the time she explained, he was kind of gone and out of sight. And I almost felt like, "Geez, I, I just wanted to say to him, little guy, don't stress. Everything's going to be okay. You can still live a full, fun, fruitful life. You can still achieve your goals. You can still reach for the stars. You can still dream. You can still discover. You can still do whatever you want to do. Just because you can't see." Doesn't mean you can't live. And these two ladies, that uh, perhaps they were family members, perhaps they were, were you know, teachers from school or something. They were, from what I understand, they were a little bit rough with him. They were like, "Come, come, come!" Pushing him along. And uh, I would have liked to have just stopped them in their tracks and said, "Hey, easy, take it easy. Hey, little guy, it's okay. Life won't always be so hard. It doesn't have to be." No matter what stands in your way, no matter what obstacles life presents, you can still live, you can still dream, you can still reach for the stars. The psychologist Viktor Frankl, who spent three years in concentration camps in Auschwitz and Dachau, said, when we are no longer able to change a situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. Everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances to choose one's own way sometimes you only see things clearly when you close your eyes that was Aaron Miller he's the host of the armchair explorer podcast We're going to talk with him and get a sneak peek behind the scenes at his show in just a moment. But first, it's that time of year when a lot of us are starting to think about summer. Hiking, swimming, cycling, and of course camping. One of our sponsors for this episode is a company called Hot Ash. They make wood-burning fire pits, stoves, and other outdoor gear to help you have the best outdoor cooking experience possible. The rocket stove they make is portable and durable, and you can cook a meal using only sticks and twigs. No outside fuel necessary. Each stove is made in America and comes with a lifetime guarantee. For 10% off your purchase, go to hotashstove.com and enter the coupon code OUTTHERE at checkout. That's hotashstove.com, promo code OUTTHERE. Support for OUTTHERE also comes from BetterHelp. BetterHelp provides professional online counseling to clients all over the world. They have specialists in all sorts of areas, from depression and anxiety, to family relationships, to LGBTQ matters. When you sign up, they'll ask you a series of questions to match you with a therapist who can meet your specific needs. You can meet with your therapist via video chat, phone, 
even text. In the event that your therapist isn't a good fit, you can always switch to a new counselor. If there's something that's interfering with your happiness or preventing you from meeting your goals, get the support you need. For 10% off your first month of counseling, go to betterhelp.com slash out there. That's betterhelp.com slash out there. As I mentioned earlier, the story you heard on this episode comes to us from the Armchair Explorer podcast. We're joined now by Aaron Miller, host and founder of that show. I wanted to hear why he started the show and why he thinks travel writing is such a big deal in the first place. Aaron says as a travel writer, all his work dried up during the pandemic. So he used that as an opportunity to branch out into audio storytelling. He wanted to make a podcast that would be different than most of the travel podcasts out there. A travel podcast focused on narrative rather than interviews. I sort of had this idea to do, like, I love shows obviously like Radio Lab and TED Radio, or, you know, big kind of NPR shows like that. Um, and I thought, God, you know, no one's doing this in the travel sphere, you know. Um, and I, I didn't understand why they weren't doing it. And then I started the podcast and I made the first couple episodes and I was like, Ah, that's why they're not doing it, because it takes so long to produce an episode. <laughs> oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, aha, I get it now. I guess my, my passion for writing has always been to write about the outdoors, to write about nature. You know, and in some small way, I hope to, I guess, inspire people. You know, I, I feel like we're all... Uh, we're all living in something of like a wonder deficit, you know. We, we have so much information, we have so much entertainment, but we don't always have enough space to really appreciate those small things. And uh, for me, that's what it's, it, that's what travel writing is all about. It kind of gives you the freedom to convey those peak moments of real sort of transcendence and wonder that you get. You know, the premise of the show is the world's greatest adventurers tell their best story from the road. That's the sort of hook line. But but what I say at the end of every episode is um, the more you look for wonder in the world, the more the wonder of the world becomes a part of who you are. And that to me is really what the show is about. It's about becoming those vessels for recognizing the wonder of the world and not not letting it just slip past. I wrote a book on um, on wonders of the world, and uh, I opened that with "Wonder is fine dining for the soul," and I, I really believe that. You know, it's like this spark that our best art and science and ideas comes from. It's our curiosity. I think that curiosity, that searching for stuff, that sort of broader sense of what being an explorer means in big ways and small ways, is is really what it's all about. Um, and the last thing I say after I say that on every episode is I say, dare to be truly alive. And I guess what I mean by that is dare to dare to break out of the mold of your of the boxes that you're in. I think so many of the, the people that I have spoken to in the last year through the show are people that have, you know, done something extraordinary for themselves, um, whether that be something huge like you know walking the entire length of the amazon river or you know driving from 
Alaska to the southern tip of South America, or maybe something it's just it's just small, smaller and more personal to you. But I think we can often feel that the path of our life has been prescribed to us, and it's not. You know, it's it's uh, you, you we're sort of born into these cliques, these ways of thinking and ways of being. But um, I think if you can become aware of that, then then you can kind of wake up a little bit and dare to be who you really want to be. Mm, I love that. So I have to ask, you have a degree in philosophy. Oh, um, you've done your research. <laughs> wow. Not many people take that out. <laughs> well, I mean, it is on your website. <laughs> but I'm curious how that has shaped your approach to travel writing and to storytelling. It's a wow, that's a great question. Um, yeah, you know what? I, I, I did that. <laughs> I've always been interested in philosophy, but I mistakenly thought when I did the degree that it would just be like, you know, like sitting around sipping coffee just talking about ideas but of course it's really the history of thought it's a very very like dense and difficult uh subject um so that was a bit of a shock at university <laughs> but pl plowed, plowed my way through it but um yeah I, I love all that stuff and I actually went on did a, a graduate degree in psychology and I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by that I'm fascinated by the human experience I, I always was really into that kind of existential philosophy um, you know, the big questions really. And I guess, you know what, if you're creating whatever kind of art form you're creating, I think inevitably something of yourself comes through that. Right. And I guess, you know, try as I might, there's always something philosophical, no matter what I'm writing about or doing, there's always something philosophical that, that comes through that. And I think it's just because that's what fascinates me about the world, you know, and it's, to find ways to not just tell the travel story as a guide of here's the way to see this, here's my top tips, and but really cut it down to the to the essential narrative, to the key moments. Um, you know, I think it was Hitchcock who said, um, you know, drama is life with all the boring bits taken out, and that's I guess what we <laughs> that's what I try right. and do a little bit. You know, is is cut it down to the essential and. And then extract something deeper than just just the adventure from it. Well, Aaron, thank you so much. Thank you. This was fun. You ask great questions. I could tell you're an old <laughs> hack at this. <laughs> <laughs> Miller is the host of the Armchair Explorer podcast. We have a link to his show in the show notes, and you can also find it at armchair-explorer.com or wherever you stream podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about Christopher Venter, you can check out his website, blindscooterguy.com, or follow him on Facebook and Twitter at blindscooterguy. We also have a link to his book at our website, outtherepodcast.com. Before you go, I want to say thank you to everyone who contributed to our intern fundraiser. Thanks to you, we met our goal of raising $1,000 to fund future interns. You are helping us level the playing field and give young, deserving audio professionals a leg up. 
We are so excited to be able to pay our future interns so that everyone can have a shot at learning with us, regardless of their economic background. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Support for Out There comes from Campground Views, helping you find the perfect campsite for every trip. Mark Kep is founder and CEO of CampgroundViews.com. He says the idea is to get video footage of every campsite on federal land so that you can see exactly what all the different sites look like before making your reservation. It'll be like a Google Street View trip to the campground, except a little bit better because it'll be a video that's in 360. So you'll be able to go down the roads to the campground and then grab the screen like you do on Google Street View and look left, right, up or down and all around. Mark and his wife have been full-time RVers for over a decade. And he says this project doesn't have big corporate backers. Instead, it's funded by fellow campers who like the idea and want to help it become a reality. To sign up and become a member, go to campgroundviews.com. That's campgroundviews.com. If you're new to Out There, check out the Best of Out There playlist. This is a collection of some of our favorite episodes of all time, and it's a great introduction to the range of stories we do on the show. You can find Best of Out There on Spotify and at our website, outtherepodcast.com. That's it for this episode. Our strategic advisor is Alex Eggerking. Our audience growth director is Sheba Joseph. Jessica Taylor is our advertising manager. Kara Schaefer is our print content coordinator. Our interns are Forrest Wood and Cecily Moran. Our ambassadors are Tiffany Duong, Ashley White, and Stacia Bennett. And our theme music was written by Jared Arnold. We'll see you next time.